no, no plunder on TV will ever get a job again. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the 40 Yard Switch. We are back again on our second week of guest hosts as Wilbur embarks further on his Asian expeditions. Asian for, expeditions. Then, for anyone that follows him will know that he has just flown to Japan. But in the meantime, as I'm sure you just heard uh, a quick little uh, quip from there, we have got... Uh, returning to the show for i believe his 10th episode really? maybe his wow. ninth uh the ever dependable and much loved on this program and many others i'm sure max rezik welcome back thanks jazz i had no idea that wilbur's gone to japan because he was in singapore for the wedding yeah with jazz the lovely jazz yeah and now he's are they just going on a trip to japan or what are they yeah doing? it's just, a, just them to, to japan they're going to mount fuji and uh tokyo yeah, right. I mean, who the fuck goes to Japan just to see Mount Fuji? You'd hope they're doing I mean, a little more pretty, than that. They've got a pretty sick Airbnb in it, Mount Fuji. I'm yeah, lit, lit. Pretty, As pretty someone nice. who also recently booked a Japan trip, I'll have to talk to them both about oh, what yeah. to do. Tips and tricks. Yeah. What you going to see? Um, but Mount yeah. Fuji. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a big-ass volcano. Uh, but yes, so uh, all things football. Um, we, we know that... You are as as well versed as I am on a lot of things. So one thing I do want to talk about, um, just before we get into the nuts and bolts of everything, is a bit of a sad story, but just just wild that it's like still happening in this day and age. Is like the uh, kidnapping of Luis Diaz's parents. How hectic is that? So wild, right? Yeah, it's something that doesn't seem to happen in other sports, and I put it down to the fact that football is the world game, and as a result. There are so many situations in so many countries that are just shocking to us in the first world. Like the equivalent of this happening in say the NBA is player's house gets robbed. You would have seen recently that uh, American college football team, Colorado, yeah. was playing a game at a opponent's field and during the game, all the players' jewelry was stolen from the locker room. Yeah, so that's that, the equivalent. Yeah, no yeah. one's parents are getting fucking kidnapped. Yeah. Um, but players get robbed all the time, it seems like, in soccer. It happens all the time in England, in particular. Yeah, like we saw players. Mesut Ozil almost yeah. get mugged, but side class. With CCTV footage. Yeah. Uh, I think it is just the reality that it is the world game, and a lot of these players came from nothing because that was their only ticket out of their lives or to change their lives. Mm. And as a result, you know, I'm sure his family and his community in, is it Colombia? Yeah, he comes from a, I was met talking to Fabian about this. He comes from a really, really small town in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, so he's, you know, the, the people would know about him from hundreds of kilometers away. Yeah. And therefore, how hard is it to track where his family's from? It's not like they're walking around with security guards. Well, they probably will now. But it's just a really sad development. And you can only imagine that these players who are, you know, realistically, although they feel a lot older and more professional, they're our age. Yeah. Luis Diaz is younger. He's 25. I'm you know, sure. that's, yeah. it, it, it breaks your heart. And, um, I don't know what can be done. Like, I don't know what the solution is. I, I genuinely feel like there is no solution. Th- it's just I, a sad story. I think the solution that I was, and again, I was t- talking to Fabio about this, is just that because his, his mother has been released and, re- and located, but his father has still not been located. Jeez. Um, but if he, if, and we hope he gets his father back, the, the situation has to be relocation to the States or relocation to England. Yeah. Like that has to be the only course of action. You cannot, I know 
South, South Americans feel quite a close connection to where they're from and like their hometown and their home. But for, for safety, like when like when you're that much of a target on your head or a target on your family's yeah. head, because there's just there's just nasty people in in the world. Like you said, it's the world game, and these people are from just really rough parts of the world. You just got to get them out of those parts of the world so they're not at risk. No, completely. And it's you would assume when you leave those environments for you know, let's be real, bigger and better things and opportunities that the family would come with you because family is a lot to these players who are moving to the other side of the world at ages of 18, 19. Perfect example is Saliba who struggled with being homesick when he moved to England. Because his mother died, yeah. His mum died. Uh, So it's surprising that they didn't come over, but it shouldn't be the expectation that players have to bring their families when they leave because they're worried about getting kidnapped. Reminds me of shit like Pop Smoke situation where, you know, there's organized crime in the u.s that monitors the social media accounts of rappers and celebrities to try and determine where they are to rob them that's how young Dolph died too he, like someone someone found out that he was at a, a donut shop in uh memphis and they just what happened with pop smoke is he went shopping and he was at home at an air well he was at an airbnb in la while recording and he live streamed his purchases shopping and on the bags from like Balenciaga, it had the address that they'd been dropped off at. And the organizers, like the gangs saw the address, rocked up and killed him and his three like security. Yeah. It's just nasty people out there. Really. Just... It's surprising that the mum's been found, but the dad hasn't. Like, if, do you I know think if the mum was a, released. Is there a ransom situation? Surely. There has to be. I think they might have released one parent as like good faith or something like that. <laughs> oh but it's I, like, I don't. I don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of kidnapping situation. Because like you know, as I've seen a couple like hostage movies, but like I've obviously know nothing about the hashtag the, taken one to three. Yeah, exactly. We need Lee, we need Liam Neeson <laughs> yeah. on this one. We need the Liam Neesons. Uh, all right. Yeah, well, anyway, um, a sad story, and we hope it gets resolved soon. And just just a, just a wild uh, thing to happen in football. Is he taking time off or anything? Is yeah, he, he didn't play on the weekend. Oh, wow. um, and yeah, Diogo Jota held up a, held up Luis Diaz shirt when he scored, which was a nice touch. And Klopp spoke very eloquently about it, as he always Tragic. does with these type of things. Tragic. But yes, uh, that's that out of the way. And let's get on to the football that happened over the weekend in the Premier League. And headlining everything was the Manchester derby. Although it's not much of a... It, it's, not, it's still a, a quite an esteemed fixture because of the club profile of Manchester United and the rise of Manchester City to be the European and world juggernaut that they are now. But in terms of footballing, it's not really much of a rivalry at the moment because Manchester United are so out of sorts and Manchester City are obviously dominant. And that was a case again on Sunday evening, England time, uh, Monday morning here. Uh, Yeah, City wiped the floor with Manchester United. Uh, 3-0 the final scoreline. Could have been a lot worse. Andre Onana had his best oh, no, game to no. date um, for United, and that prevented the score from being potentially another 7 0. But yeah, yeah just, just a massive golfing class between the two. No, teams. Absolutely. So that's 34 league defeats now at Old Trafford in the 10 years since Alex Ferguson retired, which is the same number of defeats they had in more than 20 years under him. Um, and it's hilarious, right? Because I was looking at this in the sense that when United beat City in January this year, there was a sense that something was really growing under Ten Hag and a lot of sort of, av- you know, not average soccer fans, but people who didn't follow Man United so closely, but everyone's aware of their rotating door when it comes to managers. They really felt like there was a shift that City could at least have to fight for supremacy in Manchester. And, and here we are nine months on and United are really in shambles. And sure, they had three wins in a row going into this game and there was a slight feeling that they were finally building momentum. But the truth is that 
if you're a big six side and you need last minute heroics against teams like Brentford, Sheffield, and even Copenhagen, like you're way off the mark. Yeah, and like they've played ten games in the league, won five, lost five, and of the five games they've won, they've all been against teams in the lower half of the table: Wolves, Nottingham Forest, Burnley, Brentford, and Sheffield United. And all of those games have been very incon- like, uh, unconvincing performances, often resulting often in I think it was in at least the Wolves game and the Burnley game, uh, games where they've been second best and not deserved one point, let alone three, and got out of jail just because of sheer individual talent is how they've got on, yeah. got, out, got, got out of that one. Uh, and yeah, they've sort of scraped five wins very unconvincingly and then been pretty humbled in the games they've lost. They lost 3-1 to Arsenal. Yes, that game could have been very different with the Garnacho offside, but Arsenal were by far and away the better team on that day without even playing that well. Uh, they lost 3-1 to... I think it was 3-1 to, to Brighton. Again, played off the park. Uh, 3-0 to City, played off the park. Uh, Crystal Palace at Old Trafford. They only won 1-0, but like again, had more chances than United and also just like... Couldn't even score a goal. I, I, Crystal Palace are a staunch defensive side, but like at home, you couldn't score one goal. Yeah. And uh, and I can't remember for the life of me the other game that they've um, lost, but it's just for me. I, I I'm starting to think, and I know you just said before that there was optimism about Eric Ten Hag after finishing third last year, results against Arsenal, results against uh, City, and a few other things. Obviously. Still lost to Liverpool seven nil at Anfield, but that seems seemed like a flash in the pan. And yes, they've had a couple injuries to start the season. No, Lisandro Martinez for some time. Varane out, uh, Luke Shaw out. But this, Ten Hag still has a hundred, three hundred, four hundred million pound squad and a bunch of very good players at his disposal. And the players that he wanted, he because like he was given control of transfers, which are I think. In a lot of cases, in some cases it's it's it works, but in a lot of cases it needs to be a, a sort of collaborative effort who mm. which, uh, on who a team signs, because scouts can often know things better than a manager can for those type of things. Because managers, if they're too hands on, it can just get a bit messy. And so he's got all these players that he wants, and he's spent all this money on these players that he asked for, and a lot of them aren't performing. And on top of that, the play style like is so indiscernible like you you can't tell what they're trying to do he says they want to be a counter-attacking team but and sit back and sit deep but then they try and play out from the back and be in possession side but then they also a few injuries to the team and they're not able to do that because they don't have the personnel but it's like what did you spend the money on like Mm. you're just kicking it side to side to side and then going long with an honor every time it's like what is the play style and I think questions at this point, I know it's early in the season and he's been backed, but have to be asked about Eric Ten Hag. 100%. And there's, you know, general criticism that United squad lacks coherence, right? And for a time you were able to address that by the fact the team was put together by multiple managers. And now you have to worry that some of those signings by Ten Hag are making so little impact. So, you know, you mentioned this, but like Hoyland, he's buzzing around willingly enough, but, and he's just 20 years old, but he still hasn't scored a Premier League goal. Anthony didn't get on until the like 85th minute. Anthony's the most glaring one. Yeah, and, and only notable contribution was a yellow card on Docker, which could have probably should have been. Should have been. Um, you know, maybe you should keep that for off the pitch yeah. in recent form. Uh, and Christian Eriksen couldn't handle Silver in the first half, and then let Rodri drift by him to score. I think their third or second goal, and then 
uh, Amrabat was removed at halftime. You, you know, look, look where he is. And then another um, stopgap signing. He's, he was essentially a stopgap signing brought to plug a gap. And then Mason Mount brought on at the break too, touched the ball just 10 times. And then Johnny Evans is 35. And you go, you sign these players. You already had a top six side. And then you spent 400 million. And unfortunately, none of these signings are, are showing anything at this point. And you can say, okay, they're young. Hoyland's only 20. Anthony's still trying to find his feet. But when you spend this much money in your Manchester United and it's 400 million on what was already a top six team. And then on top of that, there's the lack of a clear tactic, as you've mentioned. But then also players aren't bought in. Like Ten Hag clearly does not have control of the locker room. You can look as much as Anthony. You can look at Sancho. And these players aren't bought in. And I just don't think their environment right now from a team building perspective and chemistry is anywhere where it needs to be for them to compete like the side they should be. 100%. And like... I see people, Gary Neville, most importantly, argue, uh, making the point that it's it's all because of the distraction from the ownership uh, debacle with will they sell, won't they sell, and then yeah. Jim Ratcliffe comes in as a minority owner who's going to change the whole footballing landscape of everything, and that has to be negatively impacting. Yes, to a degree, that 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 trickles down the club to a to a degree. But I'm sorry, like there have been so many teams with bad ownership that have still been able to perform way better than this on the pitch. Exactly. Even look at Spurs. Like Spurs' ownership has been bemoaned for years, despite the fact that they were successful recently. He's a fraud. Then they like... bring in Ange Postacoglu and look at them. <laughs> exactly. Like a manager can change it like that. And that's what they're missing. It is, you know, I think about obviously Liverpool the as well. Process. Sorry, before I let you. Liverpool were in the doldrums for like a good four, three, four, five years between. Uh, um, like the Dow Gleeshes and all of that, and then Brendan Rodgers comes in. Overnight, they're challenging for the title. Same thing, like they sack him when things are not going well. Klopp comes in. Within two seasons, they're they're finishing fourth. Completely. And you sort of look at the Arsenal blueprint, which, let's be fair, I know we're Arsenal fans, but other clubs would love to replicate. And yes, we all had... I was Arteta out for a long time. But what he was building, and a lot of the reasons we had criticisms is because we were basing it on results on the pitch. But he was clearly building a team, building a chemistry building a sense of cohesion among those players, putting them in a system that no one thought they were above or below. It was completely based on performance and buy-in. That That is what you need to do clearly first. You first have to win a locker room, implement tactics, and then the results will come. I don't see any of that under Ten Hag. I see players that aren't even training with the first squad that they bought in, what, two years ago for Sancho for God knows how much they spent. And more so than just not even training with the squad, like he's being forced to eat alone in a separate room away. Like regardless of whether or not he trains with the team, they probably they're his teammates. They're probably his friends. Let him eat together. That just screams toxic environment. And it's a toxic environment. And you know, let's compare the Obama Yang situation for a second with Sancho. Obama Yang was clearly being a quote unquote cancer to the locker room. And Arteta, although at the time we were saying when he was getting rid of a lot of this old wood in the team, oh, we're giving these players up for so little. But Arteta made the executive decision that it was better to have these players outside of the locker room and not influencing the team. If he is at the point where he's not even letting Sancho eat with the team, he should get him out of there as soon as possible because it is only going to be a cloud over that team. And when every one of these players go home and they look at social media, because they all do because they're our age, and they hear this story about Sancho, they hear that story about Sancho, they hear this about Ten Hag losing the locker room, it is impossible to turn it around when every influence outside of that club is pointing out 
the issues that are clearly there. Yeah. I think with the Sancho thing, yes, it's a, a lot of the blame falls on Sancho for not working hard enough, yada, yada, yada. But as a coach, I feel like it's your duty to sort of alleviate the situation. And I think he... he I don't think... Eric Ten Hag is necessarily exacerbated, but he's done far from alleviated. If it's in the media as one of the biggest stories, and any casual soccer fan can practically explain most of the Sancho situation, Ten Hag has not managed this properly. It's as simple as that. Think about how even um, Mourinho dealt with the Deli Ali situation. You know, obviously it was in front of the TV for the Amazon documentary, but he tried to put his hand around him. It didn't work and they let go of the player and clearly the club was in a better place as a result. I think there's times where you have to realize that it's not going to work no matter how much work you put in and you have to realize that there's other players that need that attention in the media rather than talking about Sancho and where he eats. Mm. Like if that's a story coming out of the club, there are huge issues that you need to resolve. Absolutely. And I think also in terms of, and this comes back to my point about Ericsson Hark having too much say over who, what players are being signed. You look at the United squad, and now its captain is Bruno Fernandes, and from day dot, I, I, I said that making him captain was a bad decision. Yes, you had to take it away from Harry Maguire, but Bruno Fernandes has never been to me and will never be leadership material. He throw, he, he, like, like, For lack of a better, more nuanced phrase, he just throws his toys at the pram whenever the shit hits the fan, essentially. I don't think they have... And he's not a team to... Not a player to, like get the group together and rise them up when in the face of adversity. No, I don't think their manager, being Ten Hag, does have, has the ability to clearly rise the players above this and get them to be focused on what matters. And then, as you've said, the other side of that is, all right, sometimes the manager can't do it, but then it's down to the club leadership. And I look at this squad and I don't see any leaders. Like, it's as simple as that. You know, Arsenal has put Odegaard as a leader and I don't think he's the most vocal or the strongest player. But, but you see his evidence of his leadership, though. You see evidence of his leadership, but he also has competent players around him that aren't being destructive when he's trying to be a captain. Yeah. Whereas at Man U, I completely agree. I think Fernandez is an incredibly talented player, but he has, to me, no leadership quality. The only reason he's been given the armband is because he's the only competent player at the club. It's not the reason to give someone yeah. an armband. Exactly. And then, so you look at... Harry Maguire may have once been captain material, but... His form and, to be honest, his off-field comments and his ego about his you know time in and out of the team doesn't also strike me as leadership material. But then Rashford is too much of a passenger too too often yeah. to be leadership material. Uh, and then you look third in the squad, Casemiro. He probably would have been the most ideal candidate for that, but I guess maybe too hot-headed, hadn't been in the club long yeah. enough. Uh, then, but then after that, you sort of think uh, after like you kicked De Gea out because he didn't suit your. Style. So now, like you look at the rest of that squad, there there is no, and this is what I mean about Ten Hag having too much sand bringing on players. This is where scouts can help you. They'll be like, they'll assign certain players that will fit the profile that Ten Hag wants of a player for a system, but will also have leadership qualities. So there are leaders in in the dressing room, not just a captain. Because if you look mm-hmm. at Arsenal, this is I feel like this is a really good blueprint. Like it, this season and last season. So like if you t- if you take the fact that we've replaced. Xhaka for Rice, both of which have, have, have leadership materials. Uh, Odegaard, captain, leadership material. Uh, Gabriel Mag- uh, Magalhaes, the centre-back, leadership material. Gabriel Jesus, the vice-captain, leadership material. Declan Rice, leadership material. Granit Xhaka, leadership material. Um, Saliba now, future leadership material, 100%. Uh, David Raya and Aaron Ramsdale, both leadership material. Uh, Zinchenko, captain of um, uh, Ukraine. Ukraine. Leadership material. Bukayo Saka, 
leadership material. Like, how many players have, have we got? And you could say the same thing about City, same thing about Liverpool. So many players in the squad in the squad where you can be like, these guys on, on, on any given day could not only put in a performance to pick the team up, but could rally the troops. And, and you, there's not a single United player who I can say would And I think the that. difference is that you've just outlined all the Arsenal players that clearly have leadership capability and have shown leadership capability. But then on top of that, even though we don't have one clear leader because we're lucky enough to have a number of people that can do that role, we know that Arteta is the boss. We've seen how he manages a change room. We see how he is on the sideline. We see how passionate he is. And there is no doubt that that inspires the players on the field. I don't see that from any Man U players and I don't see that from Ten Hag. Absolutely. And when you don't have both, that's why they're in the position they're in. Yeah. So to finish, I know Fabrizio Romano came out a few weeks ago and said that they're being back to the hills and uh, it's, and it's you know, he's looking long-term with Ten Hag. But for me, and I'll put this to you, I think sooner rather than later, that issue will be revisited if things don't improve and he will be under pressure in terms of like his job being on the line. Do you think that's something that could happen sooner rather than later as well? I don't know. If I was in a leadership position at Manchester United and having to make decisions on Ten Hag, what is giving me confidence that this will turn around? And it usually goes down to two factors to determine that. One is can he motivate and change the squad? And with players like Rashford in their current position, with players like Anthony in their current position, and then also Sancho, I don't have confidence that he has the ability to turn that around. And then secondly is this idea of additional signings. Question is who? The two players that they've been linked to most recently is Chabala from Chelsea. Sorry, he's not some great leader and they're paying $45 million allegedly or they've offered it for him. And then there's talk about Raphael Liao, which is probably more of a reference to the fact that United's the club that United is rather than that actually being realistic. Yeah, I don't that's, think, that's a waste of $110 million because they've just spent somewhere else. I don't think that either of those two options, being additional signings or Ten Hag being able to turn it around, are realistic. And I think they need to look elsewhere. I think what they need now after they've tried a couple managers since Mourinho that have been sort of up-and-comers, they don't have that reputation yet or potentially that respect, they need to go to a sure thing. They need to go to a sure thing. I don't know who that manager is, but I wouldn't put some manager who's doing really well at Lille or doing really well at Napoli in there. I think what they need is a tried-and-tested manager who's proven on on the big stage that will get the respect from the playing group. Yeah, 100%. All right, well, from a team that's struggling to two teams that are flying at the moment, we now Amen. move to Arsenal and Tottenham, who both won over the weekend. And for the first time in Premier League history, the two teams in North London sit first and second of the, in the Premier League after 10 games. Uh, it's lit. Yeah, it's never happened before. It's um, lit. Should we start with Arsenal? Yeah, we'll, we'll, Arsenal will talk on slightly more, uh, slightly quicker than we will on Spurs. But yes, uh, Arsenal, to the eye test, haven't looked as maybe as started as no. bris- as briskly as we did last year, but we've only scored one less goal and our goal difference is better than it was last season. So Yeah, we've got 15 goal difference, which is tied for the highest in the league, which you can't complain about. Um, when we win, we look dominant. When we draw, because in our last five games, we've won three and drawn two, I think. Uh, no, lost one, drawn one. In our last five? Yeah, lost to Lons in the Champions League, drew to Chelsea. Oh, sorry, last five EPL games. Yeah, we've only drawn one game. In, oh, no, yeah. Chelsea. No, we've drawn against Chelsea and against Fulham, but that was more than five yeah. games ago. And look, that Chelsea game could have easily gone against us. So it was one of those games where you go, all right, we're still a young squad. I still don't compare us anywhere near a city. 
which is the only team that I like. I put us more on a Liverpool level right now, and I'm even worried about Liverpool to be honest because I still think they'd beat us if we played tomorrow. That's just where I sit with Arsenal as always being skeptical. Uh, but when I see results like Sheffield over the weekend, and in particular three goals from Eddie, and we'll talk about that for a bit. But we know that Arsenal has the deepest squad it's had for over half a decade, and that sh- killed us last year. It absolutely killed us. And that's all well and good to have a deep squad where when injuries and the fixtures come about, but you need these players in the deepest squad to perform, and that's why games like against Sheffield are so important when we start players like Smith Rowe, Eddie, Kiowa, get them that experience, and then we bring on players like Reese Nelson, and I think Vieira came on. It gives the team the confidence from top to bottom that they can go out there and win important games the way they did. That was a big victory for me. And I went away going, like, I'm happy for Eddie, and we can talk about Eddie now, but it meant more for the deeper parts of Arsenal that I was more skeptical about, and that gives me confidence going forward. Yeah, 100%. And I don't think we need to touch on Eddie too much. I think, I think obviously, he's had his struggles this uh, season when he's had to be called upon due to Gabriel Jesus' injury in, in various games, uh, like the City game, for example. Too often. But this ha- like, he has... I do think he has the tools to be a top 10 team Premier League striker. It's just... But like, but like, like we are right now. I think we're we're still sort of in the process of building a team in the form of a city. And I don't. I think Gabriel Jesus is obviously a better player. But I don't think that when we eventually get to where we want to be in two years, either of them will be the no. the, the main focal point of our attack. No, we. You know, if Arsenal wants to compete and be even considered with, I a think team we can like win a city. league with them. But like, I don't think we can stay at the top with. Them. No, and you need the equivalent of like a Declan Rice up front and that stature of player, that amount of money spent. To, to feel like you're in that position to compete against City because they've got the Declan Rice in every position on the field. And without a Declan Rice level of goal scorer, um, you know, you're not going to get Haaland, but you need a player that has that gravity of a Declan Rice where when he's starting, you feel confident that you are rock solid in yeah, the midfield. It's Declan Rice, it's Mo Salah. Like, those, players, those players. You know, those are the players that win you trophies. And yeah. I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of criticism of Eddie but there's also probably not as there's no player that doesn't start in a sorry no striker that doesn't start in the EPL has more pressure on them than Eddie and Kedia and that's because there's so much expected of Arsenal they're playing so well what happened last season and he's sitting on the bench either waiting for Gabriel to get I mean yeah for Gabriel to get injured or play on a cold night on Tuesday in the Champions League and that's hard to always stay from a mindset perspective, ready to go. And you can't expect him to go out there and score three goals every time. Like, there's no substitute striker in the Premier League that has that level of pressure on them. Yeah, I agree. But I also think that he has the ability to in spurts until Jesus comes back. And like, especially now that he's scored a hat-trick like that and the caliber of the goals that he scored. Oh, incredible. To also have the confidence to... And, and like, it remains to be seen because he... You know, I I want to see if he can do it against a better team, and we've got Newcastle at the weekend, so we'll see. But um, if he can do it, uh, even to score one goal against multiple big teams, then I'll be like, yes, like you're probably again still not the guy, but also it it it, it gives me it gives me confidence that if one of our if if Jesus goes down, we've got a more than capable stand in, yeah. and it also gives me it also is good because it boosts his transfer value. But anyway, I think yeah, um, with Arsenal, I think. What you've touched on before about players coming in and uh, like Smithrow, Vieira, Nelson, um, and Kivior and um, 
and just like the, the the way that these guys can come in and and perform at the level that's required it's it's massive for confidence like you said like it, it just means because like the way city are so successful is because and the way reason pep rotates so much is for the same reasons it's just that everyone's always feels involved everyone everyone is never more than you know a week or two removed from their last football action so it keeps everyone fresh keeps everyone match fit keeps everyone you know switched on Mm. and i think that's great um but yeah so like i why and i also think the one thing that occurred to me the other day was that we've started slowly ish but still see where we are on the table. City have done that in the past. And I'm not yeah. saying we're going to do what City, but City have started slowly and then gone, and then once things click for them, they go on like a 15-game winning streak. And I'm not saying we'll do that this season, but the foundations are there for us to be not performing at our peak, but still grinding out results. Uh, but we have now the talent that if the things do eventually start to click, you know, Kai Havertz, I, haven't, I don't think he's been poor this season. I think he's been just fine. Uh, not good, not not like great, but just fine. If he starts to, you know, add a few goals to his game and starts to really assert himself physically, if Smithrow starts to really be knocking on the door, um, you know, uh, and that pushes Erdegaard to be even better. If you know Saka and Martinelli, you know, hit full stride, Jesus hits full stride, then and then you know, come after Christmas, we're scraping, we're we're beating the teams in the lower half by three or four goals, and we're like going to Liverpool, United, all those places, and and Winning. putting in really good performances then who knows but yeah yeah it's a it's a good point and the hard thing with being an Arsenal fan now is obviously the expectation on us as a club after last year's result and my view last year was if we finished in a Champions League position that was a successful campaign Same. we did that I was over the moon this year not comparing us to any other club because City City like if City didn't lose a game this season I wouldn't be surprised right surprising they've been slow start my expectation of Arsenal is to finish top three and I think that's realistic and I think they can do it and if you're expecting anything more than top three in today's EPL it's a stretch unless you're Man City yeah no 100% and yeah I think that's where do you want Arsenal to finish like what do you think what's your expectation I said with the addition of European football to our fixture list which makes it a lot more congested I want us just to consolidate Top four, ideally top three, because especially with how many, how many teams are struggling this year, I think we can. But yeah, consolidate top four uh, and uh, win a, a a cup, whether it's the FA League Cup or even, you know, I'm not going to say we're going to win the champion. Uh, if we don't win a cup, but we make like a Champions League semi or quarterfinal, I'll be happy with that. Yeah, it's a great... Because you've got to think about where we were two seasons ago, right? Like this stuff doesn't happen overnight. And when you've got teams as good in the EPL as, as they are, it's sometimes hard that you can see massive improvements from Arsenal, say, from last season, but other teams can also just get better too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Speaking of, Spurs. Uh, so, yes, Spurs, I think, obviously, amazing. Uh, from, you know, A lot of coverage of it in this country because of the amazing work that Ange Postacoglu was doing. And, to be fair, they're winning while playing very good football. And... You know, hats off to them. They deserve to be where they are. They've they've gotten extremely lucky in a few games. Uh, the game against us, like they got lucky that Declan Rice was injured, and then lucky that Jorginho's brain imploded. Against <laughs> yeah. Liverpool, they were extremely lucky that VAR just had the worst moment of the last two years. Uh, so yeah, they've they've been fortunate. They've rode their luck, and that luck will even out over the course of the season. But uh, credit where credit is due, uh, they have. They have they are deservedly where they are, but it has to be said. 
they are doing what we are doing last year, which is benefiting from not having any other football except for the yeah, Cups. For and sure. now they're out of the League Cup. They only have this in the FA Cup. Which so which because which, we're, we're going to very shortly talk about where we think these two teams will end up, which does make me think that if everyone stays healthy, they will. St- I'm not saying they're going to win the title because uh, they won't because I, I Arsenal had a deeper squad than they did last year and they still fell off. But um, I do think they'll. Uh, now that I've seen what I've seen, I do think with it with with how poor the other teams are going, I think they will finish in the top four, and I think. The, with the players they have in their starting lineup, plus maybe one to three on the bench, is a really good squad. But they are also an injury from one of their centre backs yeah. or an injury to James Madison away from the wheels potentially falling off. No, I agree. And obviously, as an Arsenal fan, I'm, I'm sure the same thing goes for you. You don't want to see Spurs have success. But at the same time, as an Australian, plus seeing a team that's been so shit for so long start to turn it around it's a nice story and although i you know the spurs are my least liked team in the apl doesn't mean i hate them no do i care about them no but it's another team that looks to be competitive in a league with man city and as a sports fan as a soccer fan as an epl fan i want as many teams as possible to be contending even if that means arsenal has a smaller chance of winning so seeing spurs do well Great, I'm happy for them. Do I want us to beat them every time we play them? Absolutely. Do I want us to finish above them? Absolutely. I think it's funny you mentioned top four because I feel the same way. I I expect Arsenal to finish top three. That's my expectation. And what I've seen from Tottenham, I would not be surprised if they finish top four. I think also there's this riding the highlight when you've had a pretty easy run, Postacoglu coming in, everyone's high spirits. You've played Crystal Palace, you've played Fulham, you've played... um, Luton Town and you've had wins Luton Town was only 1-0 but you know they've got a challenging next six games we've got Chelsea away this weekend Wolves Aston Villa Man City West Ham and Newcastle let's see how we're talking about Tottenham after those exactly. games exactly you know there's exactly. a lot it's a long season any team with a new coach losing Harry Kane no expectations can come in and kill it let's see how they are halfway through the season they could easily be seventh they could easily be second or first yeah, exactly. And like I said, the two toughest games that I know they've also beaten Manchester United, but like we've just touched on Manchester United, are not the team that they were last year. They've no. regressed uh, considerably. But the two teams against top four opposition that they have played so far this season, like I said, they've drew 1-1-1. One, one, one. The one they won, they were incredibly fortunate. Very. Like th- that VAR is just ridiculous. And then obviously... We don't lose Declan Rice in that game. We probably win that one too. If I'm yeah, honest, I, 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 it's a lot of what ifs, and I know you, football's not done on what ifs. You know, if that, that saying that that Italian chef did once: uh, "If my grandma had wheels, she'd be a bike." She'd be a know? bike. But it, 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 it's, it, it's undeniable that there's been there, there's been fortune. But like you know, you you do make your own luck to a degree. But like those type of things are fortunate. And yeah, like like you said now. They go to Chelsea away, which even though Chelsea's form has been fluctuating, as Arsenal showed two, uh, two weeks ago, very tough place to go to Stanford Bridge. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Aston. I'm not sure if the Aston Villa game is away, but if the Aston Villa game is away, that is the hardest place to go. That is proving to be the hardest place to go this season. Aston Villa have won all five games at home and scored 20 goals in those five yes. games, beating teams like West Ham and Brighton already. Um, so, yeah, I think they'll run a bit of a gauntlet over the next few weeks. Uh, Wolves, like, like that's five very good teams in Wolves, and Wolves are also no pushover as well. No, no. Um, 
so yeah, we'll see where they are. But I, 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 and I just think that, like I said, with how potentially thin their squad is, if one or two of their players go down, as we saw with Arsenal, all, all it took was them losing Saliba, and it was just catastrophic. If they lose Van de Ven or Romero, what happens? And also, I just think, I think they're good enough to finish fourth, but I back the quality and depth and also just like familiarity with, uh, you know, the run into the end of the season of a Liverpool and a City and now, I guess, to an extent, Arsenal to finish yeah. above them. Completely agree. I, um, you know, it, it, it's easier to play and you've got a clearer mind and focus when, you know, your fan base and the world is singing Ange Postacoglu's praise. Every interview, you've got a soundbite of something hilarious. He says, you're winning games, you're at top of the premier league which is a huge achievement in itself right we're not we're not denying that but let's see where we are in february march you know that will be where we really test them and then you know how do the players react when maybe they lose one or two of these next three games um will the morale be so high will the performances be as crisp will they have the same mindset going into these games or will they sort of fall into the lower pack and that'll be where we would have expected them to be 100 percent do you think they'll make any big signings in the summer transfer? Mm, uh, you mean in in uh, January? January, sorry. Um, I don't think so. they might actually, but I'm pretty sure they spent most of the Harry Kane money uh, already because I, I think it was forty million for Van der Ven, uh, forty million for Madison, fifty million for Van der Ven, uh, and then they bought a f- Manuel Solomon and a few others. Um, so they might, but I don't think it'll be anyone that's like, that's like game changing, you know, no. they've, still, they've still got Benton Kerr to come back from injury. Um, and yeah. All right. So moving on to our last sort of big topic and most notable, new, most notable news from the week in football, Lionel Messi wins, has won the Ballon d'Or. Uh, also, we don't, we won't talk about it as much as length, but also congratulations to Aitana Bomati, who wins the women's player, uh, Ballon d'Or. Uh, uh, arguably, considering her resume from the season, more deserving than Haaland or Messi uh, to win the men's Ballon d'Or. But yes, the point of controversy has been Messi winning the Ballon d'Or and whether or not it was deserved, uh, considering he uh, only the only achievement that he had was winning the French League and uh, being the best player and winning the World Cup. I'd say that only achievement, it's a pretty big achievement, versus or stacked up against Haaland's treble-winning record-breaking Premier League goal-scoring season. So I'll just start I'll, I, before we as to sort of just sort of dive right into it. Do you think it was a deserved Ballon d'Or win based on? So I think if I, as a fan of multiple sports, including basketball, I think these awards, equivalent of MVP, which we have in the NBA, Ballon d'Or in soccer, football, I don't think there is ever or there is such thing as a perfect methodology to win it. And I think with Messi, it is a legend of the game, won a World Cup, you know, Haaland won a treble. How are you comparing these players and how are you compete? How are you able to weigh up the idea of a treble against a World Cup? You know, is it based on club performance? Because Messi has nothing to show from his time at PSG and into Miami these this last it's, season. So it's also worth pointing out because everyone's saying Messi moved to Inter Miami. Uh, the Ballon d'Or is based on a season, not a calendar year anymore. So it was based on his last season at PSG and including the World Cup that was in that. So as soon as the off season started in July or June, whatever it was, that's the cutoff for the Ballon d'Or. I don't think these awards mean much 
And, you know, Messi's won it, what, seven times now? Eight, eight times? Eight. Like, I was surprised with the amount of controversy from the footballing world about this, particularly as a result of Haaland not getting it. I think it would have been more outrageous if, say, Haaland had won the Champions League and the Bundesliga with Borussia and had the same scoring record in the EPL. I understand why players and pundits are frustrated that Haaland didn't win. I think Haaland had just as good, if not a better case than Messi. But I think the entire world can see why Messi would win an award like this for a season like this. Yeah, and I think also contextually and narratively, like, thing, it, it, like things like that matter in in this sort of space because, yeah, Messi was the best player at a World Cup and won the World Cup. I don't mean to say that dismissively, but it's not just that he was the best player at the World Cup and won the World Cup. It's the fact that he was... 35, you know, in his last ever World Cup and people were counting him out saying that he's moved to PSG, he's potentially washed. Like, you know, he had a down year the season before the season season he eventually ended up winning the World Cup in the middle of it. So people were like, there's no way... Even though Argentina won the Copa America, they were like, this would be a huge achievement if he did. And it wasn't just that, it was... So that all that considered he not only like won the world cup and but he won the best player of the tournament not because not out of like a you know by a slim margin and it was he was favored because he won the world cup it was because he was dominant like every game he was willing argentina to win and people say oh he got six penalties whatever those people clearly didn't watch the games he was Far and away, the most impactful player at that World Cup. He was literally making everything happen for them. Yeah, Argentina doesn't win without Messi. Argentina doesn't get close without Messi. And to me, the World Cup means more than... I'll be like Again, it can be disputed, obviously. But the World Cup means more to me than anything else in the football world. It means more to me than anything else in the sporting world. But yeah. Exactly. Um, so I understand the rationale. It's not like it's some robbery the way that a lot of people have been describing it. Yeah. And also, I, I, obviously, and then this is also weighted differently because of the the challenge of leagues but Messi domestically last season had more goal comp- contributions than Haaland by three oh, Haaland had 50 something goals and nine assists and uh, Messi had like like uh, 25 goals and 28 assists or something like that which was like three more goal contributions than Haaland so I, I know it's the French League versus the Premier League but yeah, but the equivalent... If you break it down, it's like still... Yeah, the equivalent... It's not is, like he was like slouching around and then won the World Cup and went back to slouching around. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's... Uh, PSG's position in Ligue 1 is not that different to Man City playing Sheffield United on a Sunday. Like, yeah. I'll be fair. Yeah. What's more interesting about this Ballon d'Or discussion, because I feel like, you know, no one's right or wrong. It's like comparing Michael Jordan and LeBron. Like, no one can win the argument. There's no winner is actually the methodology around these awards. And my understanding of Ballon d'Or is it's voted by 100 journalists. And then people are shitting on the sort of the journalist media side of sport for letting this result happen. But I I think it'd be a funny opportunity to discuss um, how the NBA MVP works, right? So the NBA Most Valuable Player Award is, you know, the most prestigious award similar to the Ballon d'Or that an individual basketball player can achieve in the regular season. And it means that you're essentially, the way it's described is that you're better than the rest of the competition in terms of statistics and success. So like good record and statistics. And 
since I think it was like the 1980s or the 1990s, a panel of broadcasters and sports writers are brought together to vote on the MVP. So pretty similar to Ballon d'Or with 100 journalists. And this is the US and and Canada because the NBA obviously has teams in Canada. But the panel also consists of 100 voters. So it's the same as the Ballon d'Or. And how it works is that each voter or journalist, let's say, submits a ballot of their top five choices of MVP. And the points are awarded on a scale of 10, 7, 5, 3, 1. So obviously the player they think should win the MVP the most gets 10 votes. And then the player that receives the most total points wins the award. To me, that provides a level of transparency because as soon as the MVP is awarded, the rankings, all the statistics come out and everyone can see like who voted where, who they gave the votes to. And I don't know if the same thing occurs for the Ballon d'Or, but that would be really cool. All they, they announced for the Ballon d'Or is like the total votes each player got. Yeah, so just the total. But they don't tell... So how much was... Do you know what the difference was between Haaland and Messi? Was it even close? Um, it, w- it wasn't as close as it has been in recent years, but... Um, it was it was close-ish. I'll 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 get it up quickly. Because I think a better way to discuss it is like, all right, if there's outrage over how a vote went, what is a better way to determine who wins the award? And we can all agree there's no perfect methodology, but personally, I think the best way to do an award of best player, whether it's football, whether it's basketball, is that I think the players should get a vote. I think that the media should get a vote or like some say in it, and then also the fans. So I think those three groups of the sporting world need to be involved in these decisions. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And it's hilarious to me that for both, well, two of the biggest sporting competitions in the world being you know, NBA basketball, it's a world game at this point, and the Ballon d'Or is only done by the media. I think there's something significantly flawed with that. Yeah, no, 100%. And... It, 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 it's it's interesting because in footy, like the Brownlow is voted by the umpires, but like it's considered maybe not as in, as important of a word by uh, as uh, of of an award by players and hardcore footy fans as maybe like the coaches player of the year yeah. award. And it, it would make it would be interesting if 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 the football Ballon d'Or could change to like you know a thing where it was past players and coaches, like esteemed past players and coaches that vote on it. Not Increase the panel of people who have a vote. Yeah. I can't find what the stats was, but I think Messi had like 600 and something votes and Haaland had 500 and something. Like yeah, so close. it's not outrageous. Yeah. But it's I have no issue. Like you, I don't think in the Ballon d'Or you'll ever see a unanimous MVP like you would in the Steph Curry situation in 2015-16. No, and I don't think anyone would deny that Steph Curry uh, should have won that season unanimously either. No. Uh, and like even, you know, with Embiid winning last season, I think no one would deny that Jokic had just as much, if not more of a ride. But when you're dealing with media, you know, they work in narratives, they work in stories. And the story around Jokic winning two seasons in a row before that, Embiid having the only player in three seasons to kind of get close to Jokic led to him getting... Yeah, the and, then, and then things like voter fatigue start to come in. Exactly. And that's, that's something that probably wouldn't happen with like a coaches and players led because they wouldn't care about voter fatigue they'd just be like he was the best player the harder thing with football is that because it's a word, world game I'd love to know who are the 100 journalists that get yeah, involved like what, where they're how, from how, how wide is the variety of yeah. nationalities that these players are coming from I yeah. mean the journalists and I guess from. this answers the final thing that I was going to ask about that and we've sort of answered it without having to ask the question is the Ballon d'Or somewhat of a flawed award no I, I would say it is because you sort of argue that the argument that's been put forward is that, you know, Messi and Modric won the Ballon d'Or in years they did amazingly in the World Cup, which sort of trumps 
seasons like Haaland's. For sure. But then you've got someone like Wesley Schneider in 2010 who won the treble and made a World Cup final. And, and Messi still won that year. Yeah. And Messi's stats, I'm sure, were crazy in 2010. He was, in the peak of, he was at the peak of his powers at age 23 or whatever it was. Yeah, he was. But it has to be... You, you can't not look at it and be like, you know, he's... Um, Snyder's done everything short of winning the World Cup like he's literally done everything As Messi didn't it, Messi I don't think Messi even made a, I think Messi might have made a quarter final in 2010 and he didn't win he obviously didn't win the Champions League he, I'm not even sure I'm, I don't think he won the La Liga in 2010 but he may, he may have but like yeah he maybe had one trophy but but at that point I can see why because Messi was just like so much better than everything else that like success in team success didn't come into it because he was just like how can you dispute that he's the best player but then it's sort of like when you do things like that it sort of just brings the whole thing into question of how much everything is weighted because what it was for some person but it isn't for another person yeah it's a clear guidelines on what's being voted on how it's being assessed how the voting works and i think you know every time you have discussions about these awards it's an opportunity to assess is there a better way to do it especially if there's controversy around it but my overall view on this Ballon d'Or race and Messi winning it is I don't think the gap between Haaland and Messi was so extreme that Haaland was robbed. Yeah, and I share exactly the same view. But I, I, it I think, feels I like think English fans them... feel that way. Like English soccer fans, even if they don't support Man City, feel as though Haaland's been robbed. And I'm surprised with that commentary. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's. I think a lot of that is Premier League bias. Yeah, it's but just I, the bias. Yeah, but I think... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in the same... Point of frame of mind as you is that I don't I think if either of them had the one I think I would have been fine with it I think both had good seasons both were deserving of winning an award like that so if in if like Mbappe had won this season I would be like that's fucked <laughs> yeah that would have been a bit more outrageous um, alright finally we're going to move on to the last portion of the show which is as we do every week predicting the two biggest games or however many it is awesome. but this week it's two games of the weekend so we'll do our boys last so we'll kick things off with chelsea versus tottenham we had already alluded to the fact that this is the first of a few tough games for tottenham chelsea obviously had looked good for a few weeks uh back-to-back wins and no, three wins in a row and then looking good despite not getting a win against oh it's at tottenham arsenal uh there you go it's not at Stamford bridge um but then uh, Chelsea dropped a bit of a stinker against Brentford on the weekend. Yeah, they did. That was a shocking game I watched. It. So, yeah, very interesting one because Chelsea, Spurs will go into this as favourites, but Chelsea are a team that on any given day, if they just sort of figure it out... Can do it. Can do it. I also think after coming off the bench, Reese James will probably be starting because he came off the bench last week. Forget he exists at this point. Yeah, but he did come off the, he did come off the bench last week, so I would assume he plays at least 60 minutes this time. That could be a huge factor. Um, and yeah, I just think Chelsea have a, enough available players of, of enough talent right now to do something against Tottenham, which is whether or not they can put it together. I think it's going to be 1 0 Tottenham just because they're playing in Tottenham. I think that's a huge part of this game. And Tottenham's looking a little more coherent. And that's what leads me to 1 0. I think 1 1's. I don't think Chelsea walk out. I would be surprised if Chelsea walk out with a win. I think it's going to be a draw. And like that, that might be a little bit of like anti-Tottenham gaze, but I also just think Chelsea are an inconsistent team, but they generally don't put two bad performances together in a row. So I think they'll bounce, they'll bounce back this season. And for and like outside of the game against Brentford, they have uh, had a better XG than every opponent they've faced this season. And 
that uh, by the law of averages that just has to come good at some point yeah it does and I'm not saying it will come good completely against this game but I do think they'll score and they actually have had a pretty decent defensive record this season so I think they'll make it tough for Tottenham but I do yeah I think Son and Madison will have a moment which which where one away one of them either score or assists but I do, uh, and Chelsea do struggle in front of goal but I do think Chelsea will have enough in them to just I just think something has to give for Tottenham soon because like they very well could go on this whole run and win every game but I just they haven't they've been winning in the recent weeks but they haven't just been blowing me away like they no. 2-1 against Fulham 2-1 against, Crystal, against um, Crystal. Crystal Palace 2-0 against Fulham where they didn't one look amazing 1-0 against Luton I know they had to play a send off but again didn't look amazing no. so I just think yeah I think this has just got a draw I think yeah, I think more what, from the Chelsea response than like Tottenham necessarily playing bad. I but. agree. I think there's more, you know one way to look at these games is always who goes in with more on the line, and there's no doubt that Chelsea, despite Tottenham's position in the league and what's going on with them at the moment, I think Chelsea has more on the line, particularly out of after the commentary around Chelsea's loss to Brentford over the weekend. Yeah, hundred percent. A lot of questions around Pochettino. I think they'll try and turn it around. Yeah. All right, now uh, our boys, we. Uh, take the trip to Newcastle. Uh, we both have big mi- midweek games. We play West Ham tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow morning, and Newcastle play Manchester United in the League Cup. Uh, Newcastle are tipped to be without uh, Sven Botman, Jacob Murphy, obviously Sandro Tonali, uh, Alexander Isak, and one other player. Uh, but yes, a lot of injuries on their lineup. Most notably, Sven Botman and Alexander Isak. Uh, still got Callum Wilson, but um, and Jacob Murphy, who put in an absolutely stupendous performance for them uh, two weekends ago. So, yeah, so quite a few players missing for them, but still can't be underestimated. But I do think uh, it's at St James's Park too. I'm pretty sure, so it tough is. place to go. But I do think there's a chance for us to get a result with the players they have out. I think as a result of the fact that they have those players out. Arsenal should be going in expecting a win. Yeah. I would if it's anything under a win, I'll be disappointed. Yeah. I think it's a two nil win. I think they've got some of their best players out. Arsenal's healthy. After Enkedia scoring bloody, you know, ten goals against Yeah. If Enkedia this is this is where Enkedia can really like prove some people wrong. If he can back yeah. that hat trick up with just what just one goal against yeah, Newcastle. Exactly then people will start to potentially change their opinions on him. Well, this is what I was thinking, you know, with Enkedia's performance and watching it and seeing those incredible goals. I was like, bro, I would much rather you score two goals in five games than three game, three goals in one game, in five, in one game, but then not score for four. Yeah. This is your opportunity with that many players out, go on a run, bring Arsenal with you. I'm going to go 2-1. Two, 2-1. One. Two, one. There'll be some mistake, there'll be some defensive mistake that'll fuck us and we'll, yeah. we'll concede one. I'm going to go... Just because I want to be different, I'm going to go a little bit overconfident here, which is never a good thing. I'm going to go 3-1. I think I think Newcastle didn't look very convincing against Wolves last weekend. Uh, and with quite a few of their good players out, they haven't... Like, I, I know, they, to be fair, they beat they smashed Crystal Palace two weeks ago. But I just... And I know it's at St. Andrews Park, but I just think that Arsenal... I kind of, you know, start like, you know, it's just Sheffield, but Arsenal just seem to be a little bit more put together at the moment, despite like, cause just cause they haven't, they're not missing players. And I do think that, um, we can go there and, and get a result. And I, 
I just I'm only saying three one because I didn't want to say two one because I was going to say two one as well. <laughs> but um, yeah, three one's ambitious, but I do think we'll win, uh, and I do think Newcastle. But at I do the think same Newcastle time, score. Arsenal winning five nil last week, going into this game with all those players injured, I think they'll be riding a wave. They'll be confident, and they should walk out of there with the result. Yeah. Anything below a win would be a disappointing result, and Absolutely. therefore you have to back Arsenal at St yeah. James, even if it's at St James. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, that's it. You heard, you heard it here first. Uh, wins wins for Arsenal, and uh, Rezik thinks Tottenham will sneak it. I think a draw. All right, that brings to a close a another episode of the 40-yard switch. What episode are we on? This is 119, I'm pretty sure. Hectic. Uh, as always, if you have liked what you have heard and have made it this far, uh, chuck us a follow and a five-star rating on Spotify. We appreciate it. Uh, and follow us on our socials. Um, and yes, thank you once again, my man, Max Rezik, to come in at the 11th hour and save the day. Um, always a pleasure having you on, my man. It's a pleasure. Always good to talk football. And yes, uh, I will see you next week with another guest host, uh, unconfirmed at this date, but we'll see who it is. All right. Thank you very much for listening and bye-bye. <laughs>